It's showtime! It's showtime! It's showtime! Ladies and germs, it's showtime! Hello and welcome back to the Showtime Movie Podcast. As always, I am Show. Thank you for listening. This is episode 30 of the Showtime Movie Podcast. Alas, we did not make it to the best of 2018 Apple Podcasts. Oh, well. I guess it's always 2019. Isn't that right, everyone? No, I'm kidding. I did not, I did not exactly expect us to be on that list, but... I am pleased with the uh, comments we get, you know, mentions in, on Twitter and comments by my friends in real life. So, you know, keep them coming. I like to, to interact with all of the listeners, all of you guys. And uh, today we'll get right into the movie reviews because because the last couple uh, of episodes were about TIFF, right? And if you uh, did not listen to those episodes, you know, some of the movies, or a lot of those movies, I should say, are actually now in theaters and I'll probably kind of republicize those as we get closer to Oscar season because a lot of those movies will be big players at the Oscars. Uh, but And so I, I don't really think a lot of the movies that I'm going to be talking maybe one movie I'm going to talk about today will be a bit of a player at the Oscars. But uh, yeah, some some news to talk about. Maybe we'll actually get back to a bit of the news segment. We will get to the movie reviews as well. I wanted to talk a little bit off the top here uh, about Venom because Venom was enough time ago that I don't really feel like I should do a full review. You know, if you are going to go see Venom, you probably have either already seen it or decided that, you know, it looked like a terrible movie and I didn't, you know, you, I didn't want to go see this movie. So why bother, right? And you know what? If that's how you feel, I don't blame you. You know, people feel this way about all sorts of movies, whether you think it's good or I think it's good or you think it's bad or I think it's bad, you know, you get the picture, right? So I think people have kind of essentially what I'm saying made up their mind on Venom already, which is nothing, nothing's wrong with that, right? Maybe you're waiting, maybe you haven't seen it and you're waiting for it to come out on Netflix, but you maybe, so you don't care if you get spoiled. Truthfully, not a lot to be spoiled in this movie. Venom wins. Who knew, right? Who knew Venom was going to win? No, I don't know. Venom is just, I'll give my, 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 two, three-minute review of Venom in that if you saw the trailer for that movie, right, and I think we might have talked about it on this podcast. I forget with whom. Maybe it was just me. Maybe it was with Mark Stanush, who was a frequent uh, guest on the podcast. Maybe it was someone else. But regardless, I feel like if you saw the trailer for Venom, you probably formed an opinion on it right away. Maybe you said, huh, this could be good. Or you thought, like I did, truthfully, that this looks like the worst movie ever. Maybe not the worst movie ever. That's a bit of an exaggeration. I freely admit I just like to hate on it, and it's kind of fun to hate on it almost. But I just feel like Venom was as bad as you probably thought it was. Okay? But here's the caveat. Okay? Here's the caveat about Venom. Because... You've heard me rag on other movies before. You've heard me just absolutely torpedo them. But Venom in particular is bad, but it's also hilarious, okay? And I I have to say, it's because of Tom Hardy entirely. The plot is as thin as possible. The whole thing takes place over maybe two days. The acting outside of Tom Hardy, even from the legendary Michelle Williams, is not that good. You know what I mean? Like, Riz Ahmed kind of hams it up didn't really believe that he was particularly threatening or anything like that i don't know i just a lot of it wasn't great but everything to do with tom hardy was fantastic okay this is the kind of role i could honestly truly see them kind of like them being awards people 
saying, you know what? Tom Hardy acted his butt off. Let's give him a, an Oscar nomination a la Robert Downey Jr. in Tropic Thunder or Johnny Depp, let's say, in Pirates of the Caribbean. It's not, it's not as good as those movies, right? Because in addition, I think, to their incredible acting in those movies, the movies were actually good, right? Whereas, you know, Venom was not a good movie. But it's not because Tom Hardy didn't try. Let me put it that way. He gave it his all, and I think it really does actually show that he is a tremendous actor, even if Eddie Brock is one stupid-ass character. Like a char- he's a, and I don't mean like he's a dumb character, like I don't like this character. He's a character who is a dumb human being. Eddie Brock is... What really bothers me about it, and maybe it's because you guys remember I work at in the journalism sector, in the journalism industry. And Eddie Brock in this movie is supposed to be this like big time journalist. You know, he has a YouTube series or something like a TV show, YouTube series. That's like an investigative journalism. And he just like is a dick, I guess. And somehow he's a good reporter. I don't know. It just seems odd to me. He doesn't really show any professionalism. He's just some kind of loose cannon. And that's why he gets fired. That's why he's run out of New York. And because the the movie actually takes place in San Francisco, in case you're wondering why Spider-Man does not appear, because of course, Spider-Man takes place in New York. And this is in San Francisco. There are no references to Spider-Man. There's not, there's not even one reference to the character of Spider-Man. I mean, there are some references to the tertiary characters in the world of Spider-Man, certainly like Eddie Brock. They mentioned the Daily Bugle. Um, They mention, what else did they mention? Is that really it? Oh, no. They, you know, they mentioned uh, J. Jonah Jameson's son, whose name escapes me at the moment, but he is the astronaut on the spacecraft that carries the symbiote uh, when it, you know, crash lands on Earth. And, of course, they just mentioned, they just mentioned his name, so I guess it's up to you to connect the dots because, of course, it's from the comic books or the, sorry, the 90s animated series. But, look, I don't want to really go too much into Venom because, really, the movie is not that great. I will say it had some great moments comedic-wise, comedy-wise with the symbiote, which had its own voice. So it, like, talks to Eddie. And there's some great physical comedy acting bits. Like, when Eddie kind of first realizes the symbiote is controlling his body, it, <laughs> Tom Hardy does some pretty great acting that kind of shows him... It, he really sells the idea that he's not in control, right? Another another being is puppeteering his body around, and that's kind of entertaining. Uh, and, of course, the conversations between Eddie... And which is kind of a weird, like New York accent. Maybe it's maybe it's further made weird because you know Tom Hardy has like a hardcore British accent, right? Anyways, the conversations between Eddie and Venom, who I also believe is voiced by Tom Hardy, but just like kind of digital, digitally modulated, and like he, of course he puts on a voice as well while he's doing it. And there are just some really great parts, like when Venom says, Eddie, I'm a bit of a loser on my world, just like you, Eddie. You're a pussy, Eddie. And he, all these different things. I mean, come on. It just, it's just kind of silly. The famous line from the trailer, like, ah, you will be dangling like a turd in the wind, right? Like, I'm, I'm sorry, my Venom t- impression is terrible. It's not as good as my Bane impression, apparently. But, oh, also also a Tom Hardy character. Didn't, didn't even make that connection until right now. But anyways... I guess what I'm saying is there's some great comedy moments, but it's not because... I'm sure some of them are meant to be funny, but it's, I think, primarily because the movie is kind of bad. All things considered, Venom made a ton of money. Not a lot in North America, a lot overseas. So you can almost be assured at this point that there will be a Venom 2. Venomer. No, that's not what it's going to be called. But maybe by then we'll see the Sony film universe maybe they'll go back to some of the ideas that were canned 
you know, Amy Pascal had a big hand in this. She did a pretty good job, honestly, resurrecting a movie that a lot of people thought would be really bad. Don't get me wrong. It's not great, but it's not... It's not, it's, it's probably worth kind of hate watching. I went to see it with my cousin and we just had a blast laughing at it the whole time. And the audience was laughing, honestly, but I don't, but afterwards, the downside is that after the movie was over, you could hear people go, wow, that kind of sucked. And that's kind of how I felt too. It's a lot, I think a lot of people, people felt the same way. Not that it was good, but that it was entertaining. And I think we've had that conversation a lot in the past in this podcast, right? So anyways, if you're on the fence about Venom, you should probably go give it a give it a chance when it's on Netflix. I think that's the perfect opportunity to give it a chance, right? Or when it's on like video on demand, right? Then you can kind of rent it for like two ninety nine, which is probably how much you should spend on it. I spent scene points on it, so whatever. I didn't actually feel like I spent that much money. I did I did buy popcorn, I guess, but whatever. I like popcorn. <laughs> I don't know. That's kind of my verdict on the movie. If you want to see Venom, go see it, but go in with low expectations. That's kind of where I'm at with Venom, and I think that's where a lot of people are at. Anyways, we'll move on. I just wanted to get that quick Venom review kind of out of the way because I did see it and it was a big enough movie that I feel like it was worth talking about on this podcast. But anyway, so that's that's the review of Venom. I won't add a, a sound bumper or anything like that. But uh, I do actually want to tackle some news on this episode. Okay, I do want to tackle some news because as you guys all know, I love the Oscars. And up until now, they had not actually named a host of the Oscars. And a lot of people were suggesting names like Tiffany Haddish. She's pretty great. You know, we all saw her do some great work last year at the well, at the Oscars. I was trying to think of what, what event she was at. It was at the Oscars with uh, Maya Rudolph, and she's also really great. You know, they're both amazing, amazing actors. They're very funny, you know, but maybe a little too volatile, a little unsafe. For the Academy, which is, you know, as we all know, very, uh, very, uh, not perhaps another way to put it is they're not a very diverse, diversity minded, perhaps. And of course, they like to, the, those two women also like to make very volatile jokes, right? Very, uh, like I said, unsafe jokes. So not getting either of those two. Maybe people thought a more safe option would be Patton Oswalt, right? Uh, not getting him either. So here's the thing they named Kevin Hart. He of the, Millions, millions of followers on Twitter, 65 million on Instagram, I believe. And he was named to be the host of the 91st Academy Awards. And, you know, it seemed on the surface it was going to be an interesting, uh, not interesting, a good choice, right? Because, of course, he is he's a comedian. He has a huge following. He could boost ratings. He, he's decently funny, I think a lot of people would say. He has mass appeal. A lot of people know who he is. You know, he's black, so, of course, that boosts, like I mentioned, they're not very diversity-minded, so perhaps this would help with that as far as they're concerned. There are a lot of reasons to like the pick of Kevin Hart. And yet, as his profile grew back in 2015, right, as he became more and more and more and more famous, of course, things, people, people dredged some things up from his past, and it turns out, it turns out that Kevin Hart is a bit of a homophobe. One of my biggest fears is my son growing up and being gay. That's a fear. Keep in mind, I'm not homophobic. I have nothing against gay people. Be happy. Do what you want to do. But me being a heterosexual male, if I can prevent my son from being gay, I will. Now, with that being said, I don't know if I handle my son's first gay moment correctly. Like, every kid has a gay moment, okay? Every kid. But when it happens, you got to nip it in the bud. You got to stop it right there. Hey, stop. That's gay. Not good, Mr. Hart. Not good. And you know what? I understand that some people might point to that and say, it's a comedy bit. People say crazy shit during comedy routines all the time. But you know what? This is not an isolated incident. He has kind of a history of this. This is just an example of it. 
but he has had anti-gay tweets. He has done interviews where he made, he has concerns about gay people. You know, he, it's clearly something that he does not just for laughs, but because he truly believes in it. And I guess a lot of comedy routines are based or rooted in some kind of reality, right? So clearly he's a, he's a homophobic. And you know what? Tonight, while I was recording this episode, I had to change this, this segment because he has since stepped down. Kevin Hart has stepped down as Oscar hosts uh, over the tweets. So we are once again, at least at the moment, without a host for the Oscars. Pretty crazy, huh? I don't think this ever happened before. And you know what? It's a shame it happened. I'm not going to say good for him because he just, you know what? He shouldn't have said those things. And I mean, if, if they can topple, if they, they being, if, if I shouldn't say they, I suppose, but if people can be toppled by tweets, you know, if James Gunn can be toppled by stuff that he did and he's not even the, he's not going to be the director of the Guardians of the Galaxy movies anymore. He's not part of the Disney family anymore. Then Kevin Hart can certainly be toppled by stuff that is far, far, far worse. Okay. So let that be a lesson to everyone. Anyway, so no more Oscar hosts, no more Oscar hosting gig for Kevin Hart. And uh, we will see, we'll keep you updated on who actually does become the Oscar hosts in days to come and weeks to come. I'm sure it's got to be soon, right? The Oscars are in a couple of months, so it has to be soon. But regardless, I want to move on. I want to get into some actual movie reviews. You uh, basically already heard my Venom review, so we're going to tackle three movies on today's podcast. Bad Times with El Royale. Wreck-It Ralph 2, and Fantastic Beasts 2. So let's get right into those movies, and we will start with Bad Times at the El Royale. I love you, this old heart, darling, is weak for you. I love you, yes I do, yes I do. You know, when I saw the trailer for Bad Times at the El Royale, it was actually in front of the movie we saw, Hotel Artemis, actually, which I actually did review on this very podcast, if you guys remember, and I kind of just shit all over that movie because, I mean, it deserved to be shit on. And I remember after the movie, after Hotel Artemis, I remember thinking, man, I wish I had just gone to see Bad Times at the El Royale instead because, I mean, for a number of reasons, because it just looked more interesting. I just come out of Hotel Artemis, which was quite bad. And I just, I realized I had missed Alexander Ovechkin lifting the cup live so I could go see some piece of crap movie like Hotel Artemis. Like, come on, people, right? Like, come on. That's on me, though. And so here we are, months later, and well into the next season, certainly. And Bad Times of the El Royale comes out, and my cousin, who I was the person I went to go see Hotel Artemis with, we were like, let's go see another movie about hotels. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he was really intrigued, and I admit he was intrigued because John Hamm is in this movie, and he's a big John Hamm fanboy. But I don't know. I was also intrigued, and let me just let me read you the synopsis of this movie. Okay, seven strangers, each with a secret to bury, meet at Lake Tahoe's El Royale, a rundown hotel with a dark past. And over the course of one fateful night, everyone will have a last shot at redemption before everything goes to hell. Oh, if that doesn't pique your interest, I don't know what will. And here's the thing. Movie starts off pretty fun on a stylish little note. We see a little uh, 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 kind of music 
you know, it's like one of those things where, th- like, you know, the the action is happening with no dialogue over music as we see something mysterious happen, and then boom, the guy dies right in the first three seconds, and you're like, oh my god, what am I watching? And then bam, Bad Times of the El Royale comes up on the screen, and then we're in present day, and everyone starts to arrive slowly and mysteriously, each individually at the El Royale here in Lake Tahoe. And one of the interesting things about this hotel is that it straddles the line between Nevada and California. And I guess you can pick suites on the Nevada side and you can pick suites on the California side and it's like cheaper to gamble on the Nevada side because I guess that's where Vegas is and then it is on the California side. I don't know. It clearly is some, some gimmick. Don't get me wrong. I would totally stay there in real life because that's kind of a fun gimmick. I, I, I'm, I'm a sucker for that kind of crap. But here's the thing. Movie's not that good. Did you think did you really think I was going to be like? And here's the thing: the movie is fantastic. No, not that great, and which is crazy, right? Because here are the people in it. I mentioned John Hamm; he's fantastic. Jeff Bridges, also fantastic. Chris Hemsworth, also fantastic. Dakota Johnson, Cynthia Erivo, also pretty fantastic. I don't know, like, how does a movie with all these people end up being so bad? I don't understand. The movie does an interesting thing about uh, when it, when it, so kind of the way it works is everyone arrives at the hotel, they all get their rooms and they all go off to their different rooms, right? And then he goes, room one, it's like a title card, room one, and then you see John Hamm and we learn a little bit about John Hamm's character. And then while that's going on, you see room two and you see while he was, it's not necessarily happening at the exact same time, but it's kind of like starts before the events of like, right, you know, they kind of overlap a little bit, just a little bit, not entirely, but the, the events of each kind of title card scene, I suppose, story, let's go, if you want to call it that, overlap slightly. And it's interesting, it's interesting for a little bit at the beginning, very briefly, and then it does, it does it over and 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 over again. (laughs) You see what I mean? It just, it keeps going. And my real problem with this movie is that it is a hundred and forty minutes. Okay. For the uninitiated, 140 minutes is two hours and 20 minutes, okay? This movie could have been an hour and a half. It could have been 90 minutes, and nothing would have changed. This movie would have been exactly the same. You just take out maybe like... So here's the thing. John Hamm, you learn his story. You learn Jeff Bridges' story, who's playing a priest. You learn Chris Hemsworth, who's some kind of charismatic cult leader. Dakota Johnson is on the run from said cult with her younger sister. Kaylee Spaney, I believe is how you pronounce her name. She's the young woman from Pacific Rim Uprising. And Cynthia Erivo, who I think is a real standout, is Cynthia Erivo, who's also in Widows, I believe, and also great in Widows, too. She has a bit of a larger role in, uh, in El Royale, let's say. As we'll call it, I don't want to have to say bad times at the El Royale all the time. B-T-A-T-E-R? <laughs> is, that, is that what it is? No, we're not going to go with that weirdo abbreviation. Let's, well, let's say El Royale. But she has a much bigger role in this movie, and she's probably my favorite actress uh, role in general in, in this whole movie. And she sings a lot. Her character is all about singing. You learn she's kind of like a former... This movie kind of takes place in the 60s or 70s or whatever it is, and you kind of learn she is a kind of a struggling showgirl, right? Like a Like a kind of a lounge singer, right? Like you would see in Dreamgirls or something with Jennifer Hudson, right? Like she's one of those kind of singers, right? Anyway, so I feel like she was the best part of the movie, but even so, even so, even though that's the case, she's still, I don't know. She's still, there's just so many, there's there's so many scenes with her just singing and, and, and they're long, like they go on forever, I don't know. The movie like I think that's my my only real criticism of the movie is that it's really self-indulgent. 
it's self-indulgent because it, it, it assumes you, the viewer, want to know every minute detail of each of these seven characters. And the truth is, most of them are not that interesting. Jeff Bridges' character is interesting. John Hamm's character is interesting. And a, a spoiler for you, I'm going to tell you right now, because if you're interested in seeing this movie, I don't want you to waste 140 minutes thinking that John Hamm is going to be a huge part of this movie because he's not. Okay, John Hamm enters the picture from the very beginning, and then he is gone. He's actually kind of like the, the way the action moves forward, his character. Everyone else is kind of sitting around doing stuff. And what ends up happening is that John Hamm gets removed from this movie in probably the first 35 minutes, max 40 minutes. And then you still have 100 minutes left. It's so boring. I don't know. It's just... That's what I mean when I say it's self-indulgent. Like, I don't need to know every single thing. It kind of reminds me of The Hateful Eight, and I didn't like that movie, okay? Because that movie was the epitome. If you look up self-indulgent in the movie, film, whatever, dictionary, you will find Hateful Eight there because that movie assumes you want to hear Samuel Jackson and Kurt Russell talk for 45 minutes at a time when 15 would do, let's say, maybe even 10, okay? And yet, that movie keeps going, and so, and and... Bad time at the El Royale. Oh God, I, I went again. My went against my own rule. <laughs> El Royale. It kind of it almost it almost is like a, a love letter to some like a Quentin Tarantino movie. Drew Goddard is the director. It's almost like he wanted to make a Quentin Tarantino movie. And don't get me wrong, there are some really cool visual parts. Right, there's a part where Cynthia Erivo's character is sitting on a chair, facing a two way mirror. So you know at this point in the movie that someone is standing behind the two-way mirror and she doesn't know that, although I, I guess she assumes someone is there, right? Because it's all part of this kind of misdirection plot. But it's really cool. So you kind of, the camera starts out from behind the uh, two-way mirror and then it zooms forward into, the, into this hotel room. It's a motel room, I guess. So a small one with like two kind of like full, two kind of twin beds, right? Kind of zooms forward, focuses on her. And it kind of zooms back out a little bit, not back out into the into the two-way mirror, but just back out kind of so it's, you see her full body sitting on this chair in front of you. And then it starts to, she starts to sing, right? She starts to sing. And then the, the camera starts to rotate around her as she's singing. And it's a, it's a one-shot kind of thing, and it's so good. There's so many characters involved. Uh, Dakota Johnson, Jeff Bridges, and Cynthia Erivo's characters are all involved. They're intimately in this in this one shot area, and it's so fantastic. That is easily the standout of this movie because there's not a lot of other standouts, right? So I'll leave it there because I just think this movie had a lot of good ideas, and it just wasn't that good ultimately. And I think the other problem is that I feel like, and I think I said this before, movies like these, movies in general certainly, but movies like these are only as good as their villains, I find. And you learn that the kind of overarching villain of the movie ends up being Chris Hemsworth character, like I mentioned, this charismatic cult leader. And I think that the simple fact is he's just not that scary. Even when he like kills people in front of you, you think to yourself, okay, I guess. And then you kind of move on. He just, he's not that scary. He walks around without a shirt because he's jacked. And he, I guess the whole idea is that he takes advantage of the whole idea is that he takes advantage of kind of, you know, young women who have been maybe abused or, you know, left by the wayside, kind of damaged, fragile young women. And all the men in the group are just his, like, militant enforcers uh, who, who make sure he gets to sleep with whoever he wants to sleep with. And they're all young and impressionable, so Dakota Johnson goes to rescue her young sister, and you learn that she's been abused when she was younger. Anyway, so you know what I mean? Like, is that kind of storyline? 
And the truth is, he's just not that scary. The scarier character was the, the father who abuses Dakota Johnson and Kaylee Spaney's characters in the beginning, but then you learn he dies before the events of the movie ever take place, which is, what, I guess, what drives them to his character in the first place. I don't know. Have you ever played the game video game Far Cry 5? That character father? I think he is what Chris Hemsworth is supposed to be, but he's way scarier, right? I don't know. I, I just feel like his character is not that interesting, and that's a big flaw of the movie as well. It's self-indulgent, and the villain is not that interesting. There, I've summed up Bad Time at the El Royale for you because, frankly, that's all you really need to know. So if that sounds interesting to you, please, by all means, go see it. If you're a John, if you're a John Hamm character, you might still enjoy this movie, but know that because he's not in the movie all that much, you probably won't enjoy it as much as you think. And if that's the case, I, would, I wouldn't even wait for Netflix on this one. Just skip it, listen to my episode, and then go see any other movie that's going to be playing at the Oscars this year because, you know what, it's, it's, that's more worth your time. We're going to keep plowing right along here. Got two movies left, and they're both sequels, actually, right? So let's get to the first one. I kind of enjoyed both of these movies, but I enjoyed this one, the one I'm about to, about to talk about right now, a little more. An animated movie, and I mentioned the ones before, so you know which one it's going to be. Wreck-It Ralph 2, Ralph Breaks the Internet. Things I wanna say the most. I find a little bit of steady as I get close. I find a balance in the middle of the chaos. Send me love, send me high, send me never. I'm not gonna spend too much time on Ralph Breaks the Internet, and that's actually what the movie is called. It's not called Record Ralph 2, Ralph Breaks the Internet. It's just called Ralph Breaks the Internet. Apparently it's 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 a it's a name from a meme from I believe a Kim Kardashian meme. I, I am not familiar with this meme, I admit. I I did not know this when it was told to me, but whatever. But Wreck-It Ralph 2 has some interesting theories, right? Or interesting concepts, themes, I should say. Not theories, but themes. And here, here let me just give you the synopsis. I'm not going to read the synopsis, but it just, just a brief, a brief catch-up, right? So six years have gone by in this world, and uh, Ralph and Vanellope, John C. Riley and Sarah Silverman, and of course, you know, Ralph is happy doing everything every... doing the same thing every night, whereas Vanellope wants something more. And... You know, bad things happen, as you learn in the trailer. Essentially, Vanellope's game breaks, Sugar Rush, from the first movie. And it's kind of kind of Ralph's fault. He he kind of interferes with the game. She kind of goes off script. The gamer kind of retaliates, because, of course, the gamer is the one playing, and inadvertently breaks the game console, the arcade console. And Litwack, the, the uh, voice by Ed O'Neill, actually, the owner of the arcade, where all these games are, tries to fix the piece and actually shatters the gaming wheel and you learn that the there's only one other gaming wheel in existence and it's on sale on eBay. So looks like Sugar Rush is out of business. Of course, Litwack then later on plugs in a Wi-Fi router which uploads Ralph and Vanellope to the internet in their quest to well, I guess get a new Sugar Rush reel. And and, and that's when the movie starts, right? All this kind of takes place in the first 15-20 minutes when you're learning about Vanellope's insecurities. And that's what the movie is about. Not Vanellope's insecurities, I should say, but insecurities in general. And I really like the idea that Ralph Breaks the Internet puts in front of you, right? That the concept of the internet is something that amplifies how you feel, right? For better or for worse, I guess, right? And, and the last kind of part of the movie, it does take things a little literally, right? 
It te- has to do with a virus that literally amplifies insecurities. And of course, in the internet, insecurities is supposed to be like a digital firewall has a has a is hacked or something. But of course, in this situation, it amplifies Ralph's insecurities and projects it onto the internet because he's afraid his friend will leave him. The plot of the movie essentially learn is once they get to the internet, and they learn they they, they fix Sugar Rush pretty much immediately. But you learn that Vanellope discovers. I, I forget what the name of the I forget what the name of the game is called. I want to say it's called like Murder Race or Slaughter Race. I think it's Slaughter. It's Slaughter Race. That's what it is. And it's like a GTA, Mad Max type of racing game, like an online MMO, massively multiplayer online game where you know players go in and they can like interact with. I think it's supposed to be like GTA Online essentially, but like in a Mad Max kind of post-apocalyptic type filtered theme. And Vanellope, who's a racer learns that her talents are being wasted in sugar ration can be better used in uh, in Slaughter Race with Shank, the kind of, I guess, main character, main villain or main NPC, whatever you want to call her, and who is voiced by Gal Gadot. It took me until the end of the movie to place her voice, which is pretty cool, but she she's she's great. And Ralph gets jealous, not because, not romantically, because they're not in a romantic relationship, but because he's afraid that his best friend will leave her and he and he doesn't want that to happen, right? So he's insecure about their friendship. He's insecure about his own feelings. And it's, that's what it's about. It's about a very adult idea about how friendships do grow in different ways, but that doesn't mean your friendship has to go down the, down the, you know, down the rabbit hole, right? It doesn't have to go into the garbage can. Maybe that's what I should have said first, right? <laughs> but I think for the most part, this movie is pretty good. Right. It has some other things where it does some silly stuff like, look, Amazon, look, there's Twitter and there are birds flying around. And I, I, I think it, it can be a little silly, but I think it kind of kind of takes the concept of the Internet and very deftly shows you some things. Right. So with some fun visual, fun visual cues, like I mentioned, those birds on Twitter, when they go to the Instagram Web page, it's like a museum where people are observing pieces of art. I thought that was pretty funny. You know, Pinterest is like an artist studio with things pinned all over the wall. Pretty great. You know what? People had some criticisms that this movie would be like Disney the commercial because there's a point where Ralph sends Vanellope to ohmydisney.com where she meets the Disney princesses, you know, like Snow White and from te- people like the girls from Tangled. I don't remember all their names. The original Disney princesses like Pocahontas and Ariel and Belle and, you know, Cinderella and so on. And it's pretty great. <laughs> and uh, there's some great into- part there. There's some great parts there about, you know, how... They break into song when they're sad. They're is usually while it's looking at water. <laughs> they need men to save them. It's funny, you know. And it is it is like a in joke with Disney. And and I guess it, it was nice because they didn't have to you know they didn't have to do anything else really about it. It's, it was all like in house Disney stuff, right? Because this is not a Pixar movie. This is a Disney Animation Studios movie. And so that's what I kind of liked about it. It was it was very it was kind of like self aware and it was self aware. The re- I guess the reason I liked it because Disney that does not do self aware very well. Because they don't, you know, Disney is a giant monolith of a company that does not like people to make fun of it. And here they are making fun of themselves. I'm not saying we should pat Disney too hard or let them pat themselves, I guess I should say, too hard on the back. But it was still fun seeing a dwarf interact with a stormtrooper or seeing all the different princesses interact with each other or so on, right? So that was fun. And of course, they play a big part in the ending. Not a big part, but they, they, they come back to to be a part of the ending because it's all on the internet. The cool thing is actually they got all the original voice actresses to come back and voice their characters. Of course, people like Kristen Bell and Idina Menzel and uh, Mandy Moore are still alive. And then they got other people like the voice actresses for Bell and for Ariel who are still alive. They got, um, 
Ming-Na Wen, who did Mulan, she's in there, right? Of course, the original voice actresses for Snow White and Cinderella are no longer alive because those movies came out in, like, you know, God knows when, the 40s and 50s and so on, right? So, of course, they're not alive. But, you know what? Where they could, they got the original ones to come back, and that was cool. They even got the, uh, they made a fun joke about Pixar, and she, she did her kind of Scottish brogue accent, which is almost nigh incomprehensible. And, uh, of course... It was a jab at Pixar because, oh, we don't understand her. She's from the other studio, right? But anyways, I won't get too much and in, go into further into the Disney princesses, but other than that, I really liked it. But the movie has some adult themes, and I think Disney has, of course, excelled at this over the years, learning, teaching kids or showing kids that it can be funny and there's action and hilarious visual gags, and it's very colorful, but it can also be funny or it can also be moving, I should say, and teach an important lesson. There's some great things even for parents as well as a part where the two characters from the first game, Jack McBrayer's Fix-It Felix and uh, Jane Lynch's Calhoun, right? They, they're, they're married now. And they adopt, while Sugar Rush is out of business temporarily, they adopt all the kind of little hellions that are the other racers from Sugar Rush. And at the end of the movie, you learn that they're like, they succeeded wildly. They're not like fighting anymore. They're all like happy and they're friends with one another. And your friendship is important to me, not winning this race, that kind of thing, right? And one of the other characters says, wow, Felix and Calhoun, how did you guys manage to tame these little rascals? And they go, and they, they, they speak to the audience and say, well, you know, the secret to parenting is, and then like the race cars drive by and drown out what they're saying. And they go, if only every, every parent knew that, no kids would ever misbehave. And I swear every parent in the theater burst out laughing. I think they really enjoyed that. I, some of them kind of snorted through their nose, laughed, and some of them belly laughed. But I think everyone thought that was funny. And I kind of like those jokes, right? Those are kind of the jokes that appeal to, appeal to the parents only. And the kids are kind of sitting there going, what? But it's still pretty great, right? I think, I think a lot, in the end, a lot of these filmmakers don't take risks by doing things, by doing abstract things for movies, right? Like I talked about how the movie, the ending of the movie deals with insecurity, the idea of insecurity in friendships, right? And that's a hard thing to do. And if you don't do stuff like that, you sometimes get movies like Boss Baby and the Emoji Movie. But when you do try it and you do well, you get movies like Zootopia and Moana and Tangled on the Disney side and of course Frozen and now Wreck-It Ralph 2, right? So I heartily recommend this movie. I would also heartily recommend the first one. The first one, the second one is probably not as good, if that's what you're wondering, but it's still pretty great, and I hope you see it as soon as possible. Okay, time for the last movie of the episode. Mentioned it already. Another sequel, Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald is an interesting movie because one of the things that interests me the most about Harry Potter, okay, is this wide, wide world, the the magical world, the wizarding world is what it's called, the magical world. I I guess it is a magical world, lowercase m, but the wizarding world with an uppercase w is the kind of branded name for the Harry Potter world, right? And it, now that when we see these movies, it's a kind of like a Wizarding World logo with all the wands, like Harry's wand and the Elder wand and Voldemort's wand and so on and so forth, right? So they're clearly trying to build a Harry Potter cinematic universe. And honestly, that intrigues me so much. I actually love that idea because Harry Potter is... like, like Harry Potter, the, not the character, but the, the, the film universe 
is so is so wide. It can, it can be just as wide as the Marvel movies. It can be just as wide as Star Wars or Lord of the Rings. It the beauty is that it takes place in the real world, so they can just go to any period in time in the real world, whether it's a hundred years ago or present day or the eighties or nineties or whatever you want, and they can you know they can just have magic in it. They can just make it magical, right? And everyone will believe it because that's the idea that this again a secret society is going on underneath, and. The first movie was, I, it was okay. It wasn't bad. The first movie, like the first Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, was okay. Newt Scamander, who is uh, played by Eddie Redmayne, pretty good, you know. And I guess my problem with this movie, and this is the main issue with The Crimes of Grindelwald, okay, is that it tells the story of Grindelwald versus Dumbledore, these two most, the two most powerful magicians, wizards, sorcerers, whatever you want to call them, Probably not even of their time, probably ever, right? And yet, for some reason, it's about Newt still? You know what I mean? It's almost like they pigeonholed themselves into naming it the Fantastic Beast movie. Like they could, they could have just called this movie, just, just called it The Crimes of Grindelwald. Not have Newt in it, not called it Fantastic Beast colon The Crimes of Grindelwald, just not have Eddie Redmayne in it, other than a cameo, because we knew he was in the first movie. He has to be in this movie in some respect, right? I understand that. But... Why does he need to be the star of this movie? Like, nothing in this movie really, really needs Newt to have happened, right? You learn, the kind of plot of the movie is that they're, they're kind of, Dumbledore charges Newt with finding Grindelwald because for whatever reason he can't do it, and you learn it because they made a blood pact, which I guess is not a spoiler because you learn about it in the books, right? So they made a, make a blood pact which prevent them from magically harming each other. So Grindelwald, who knows that Dumbledore is the only wizard who can defeat him, sets about finding a way around this, and Dumbledore, who knows he cannot face Grindelwald, takes uh, matters into his own hands and lets Newt's character go and kind of, I guess, hunt him down? Newt's just like a, a, an above-average talented wizard who likes to, you know, is a kind soul, a gentle soul, deals with animals, and is struggling with his feelings for this other a witch in the movie, right? The woman from the first game, Tina. And I just don't understand why, he, why he's in it at all, you know? It's just, they could, have just, they could have put him as a cameo, and come up with a new character who could have been the person going forward in all of them. Because they're making five of these movies. This is, the, this is the second of five movies. So there are three more movies that have not come out yet. And I guess what? Eddie Redmayne is going to be Newt Scamander in all of them and he's going to be the hero? That is that is really weird to me. Especially because they got Jude Law to play Dumbledore. And Jude Law is fantastic as Dumbledore. He's kind of charming. He's a little mischievous, you know. But you can see the kind of twinkle in his eye. And I love I love how they, got, they portrayed Dumbledore in this one. Johnny Depp as Grindelwald, kind of weird, kind of like a, it's almost like he's Mick Jagger or something, you know, he's like Mick Jagger crossed with like another rocker, like Kurt Cobain or something in terms of how he looks and dresses, and he's supposed to be really charismatic, you know, because I guess the idea is that like the wizards and witches have this kind of war at the same time that tensions are mounting in Europe for World War II, right? And as we know, World War II actually does come come to pass, so I don't know. It's just the movie is like I, I, I use the word self-indulgent for Bad Times of the El Royale. And this movie kind of has the same problem because it just it just didn't really need to happen. And then when it does happen, they don't really have anything of consequence actually take place. It's just this movie is a setup for the next movie, which in itself is a setup for the next movie, which itself is a setup for the last movie. 
And that's the problem. They don't really do anything important in this movie. It's just kind of like, Dumbledore and Grindelwald don't even meet in this movie. What the hell? That, this movie was billed as supposed to be like this fight between these two massive wizards of our time. They don't even meet. They do not actually see each other at all. And unless you're counting that weirdo mirror that can like show you what you desire most. And Dumbledore looks at it and sees Grindelwald. Because if you guys remember... J.K. Rowling, who wrote the movie, who wrote the screenplay for this movie, actually, as well. J.K. Rowling famously said, after all the books were said and done, that Dumbledore is gay and that Grindelwald and Dumbledore are together. Kevin Hart wouldn't like that one, right? Am I right? But, you know, because, so because that's the case, I guess they, they kind of went in, and this is another thing I liked about the movie, they kind of went into that direction a little more. So you see the mirror of Erised, which of course is desire spelled backwards, and Harry in the first movie sees his parents because that's what he desires more than anything else. That's what the mirror shows you, what you desire, right? And in this, in, in, in this movie, Dumbledore, young Dumbledore, uses it and looks at it in, in the mirror and sees Grindelwald. So clearly he desires Grindelwald. Clearly he's still in love with Grindelwald. And I think it's kind of implied Grindelwald is still in love with Dumbledore too, but he's also, but what he's more in love with is power or the pursuit of power, right? So he's trying, he's trying to find a way to kill Dumbledore without having to do it himself, which is why Ezra Miller's character Credence is in this, in this movie again. And a large part of the movie is about Credence finding out who his true parents are. And there's a whole subplot with Zoe Kravitz, who is Lenny Kravitz's daughter. You know, she's in a whole bunch of movies, right? But she is uh, a Lestrange. Bellatrix Lestrange is uh, so famously from the other movies, right? So she is a Lestrange ancestor. And, you know, the movie kind of implies that Credence is her long-lost brother, and she denies it, and they kind of go back and forth. And it's kind of clear that she's not going to—he's not going to end up as her brother. It's just— how does how do we learn that? I don't know. It's you kind of have to watch it. And here's the thing, because I don't know because you know Dumbledore wins in the end. You know that he beats Grindelwald and takes the Elder Wand. You know you you see in the other movies in the books Voldemort goes to like Nuremberg or whatever the hell castle which has been converted into his prison into Grindelwald's prison. Voldemort goes there and kills Grindelwald in the movies and in the books, right? So you know he loses. You just you just don't know how he loses. And it's just because of the consequence like the, the big climactic battle in this movie is Grindelwald launches a, a spell that looks like a dragon, like a spell, a dragon made of fire, and he's going to destroy the city of Paris. And Newt, along with Nicholas Flamel, oh my gosh, there's a blast from the past, the guy who made the Philosopher's Stone, oh my god, what a treat, Harry Potter fans. You know, it's just kind of like, really, that's the deep cut reference they're going for, they're going to dig out Nicholas Flamel instead of making me actually get to see... Grindelwald and Dumbledore meet each other. Like, I thought that at the end of the movie there, when he sends out the spell to destroy Paris, Dumbledore would come out and save them because he's friggin' Dumbledore. No. Newt and Nicholas Lamel just, along with uh, maybe three other wizards, stop the flames from going past the graveyard that they're in and, like, the movie... And the movie just ends. That's how the movie ends. That's the climactic scene. Isn't that disappointing? It's just disappointing. That's kind of why I did not care for this movie too much. It had some good visual things, but ultimately the main problems were that Grindelwald and Dumbledore don't meet. Newt as a character has become completely irrelevant and unnecessary. Credence as a character is also not that interesting either. And so the most interesting part of the movie, the one that the, the reason you're going to see this movie, Grindelwald and Dumbledore fight off, fight against each other, face off against each other, it doesn't happen. So all this buildup happens and they don't even meet each other. So, you know. <laughs> That's what I got to say to that movie. Sorry, Harry Potter fans. I'm a Harry Potter fan, too. And, you know, uh, you know what? Upside, got to see it with a beautiful woman who I really like. 
close to saying another word, a four-letter word that starts with L to her. I have not said it yet, so I don't know, nothing to do with Fantastic Beasts, Crimes of Grindelwald. I'm sorry, but I had to get that out there. She doesn't listen to the podcast, so it's okay. <laughs> but, yeah, if you're, if you're a Harry Potter fan, please try and treat this movie a little, try and treat it a little lightly, because... It will. You will criticize it, and then you'll feel sad after for criticizing it because you wanted them to be good, right? You want them to be good, and that is the main problem for me. You, I wanted it to be fun and good, and it just wasn't. So, hey, you can't win them all, I guess. That's it for movie reviews today. You know, I wanted to initially do Bohemian Rhapsody with uh, Rami Malek, which I also saw. A very good movie, actually. Yeah, biopic about Queen and about Freddie Mercury, right? I was going to do that in this episode as well, but I I, ha- I did also see Creed 2, and I decided to save Bohemian Rhapsody. I think Bohemian Rhapsody and Creed 2 pair a little better than having to shove Bohemian Rhapsody, which is a pretty good movie, in with these movies. Record Ralph 2 is probably the best movie I ever reviewed of the three films we talked about on this very podcast today. And I don't really feel like Bohemian Rhapsody fits with it very well. I feel like it fits you know, more thematically in terms of, I guess, just good movies with Creed 2 a little better. And I'm hoping to get someone uh, to come talk about Creed 2, a guest for that episode, which will come out in a few days, hopefully uh, next week, probably it seems more likely in terms of guest stuff, right? So moving Bohemian Rhapsody to another episode. So I hope you liked the uh, the 30th episode of the Showtime Movie Podcast. It's been a lot of fun doing these episodes over the over the last couple of years. And I continue. I intend, I should say, to continue doing them. Like I mentioned off the top, hopefully this means we'll get into the best of 2019 podcast. We'll continue to plug them, grow the listener base, keep things positive. Very exciting. Very, very exciting stuff on the horizon. We've got some good guests coming up, some good movies coming out, a lot of good movies, a lot of interesting blockbusters, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, Aquaman, you know, a lot of interesting superhero movies, Captain Marvel, I mean, that's not until next year, right? But just in a, just from, I'm recording this uh, in the first week of December, and just for the rest of 2018, for the next couple of weeks, there are some interesting movies coming out. I don't think they're all going to be good, mind you, but I am interested in seeing them, and we are going to get as many of them on the Showtime Movie Podcast as possible. But... As always, thank you for listening. This has been the 30th, the 30th episode of the Showtime Movie Podcast. I'm Show. Always love having you guys listen. Have a great night. I get it how I live it. I live it how I get it. Y'all don't really get it. I pull up in a limit. Blocks get to spinning. Money 3D printing. Never had a limit. Never been religious. I just always had opinions. My daddy told me, listen. Better get some money and I die, go to prison. So you see, yeah, I got rich and stay free. Free the dogs doing BIDs. I know everybody not like me. Hey, got a nerd who want a Billy for a birthday. I said maybe I could rent it for your birthday. Matter of fact, I need a favor for the remix. Maybe I could get some 50